HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the latest episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're counting down the days to the 4th of July, so this week's theme is independence. After all, we're an independent food radio station. HRN is a labor of love. Staff, hosts, and listeners all share the belief that storytelling can change the world, one bite or sound bite at a time. We take a moment to ponder our founding mothers and fathers, specifically what they were drinking during the Revolutionary War. Rum in various combinations with beer and cider would be the order of the day. We highlight a story of self-sufficiency on the island of Vieques, Puerto Rico. The biggest thing we did was to start a lot of fermented vegetables because we knew the first thing to go would be refrigerator trucks coming to the island. And we examine the challenges facing independent grocery stores across the U.S. The struggle is real, but the future looks bright. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat in 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akikotema, food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcast live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see, she, uh, we see sushi at everyday lunch supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, uh, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Christina Lecky, who is the executive chef at Reynard in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Before joining Reynard, Christina worked for some of the best chefs in the United States, including um, Alfred Pultale and uh, April Broomfield. And Christina's chef's uh, idea of becoming a chef originated in her experience in Japan, while she was at high school. So today we'll discuss how Japan inspired her career and her unique cooking style and her sustainable efforts at Weynard that shares the essence of Japanese motainai philosophy and much, much more. 
But quickly before we start,、um, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Radio Network、uh, website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. And、uh, I have a couple of announcements. So, first,、uh, I'll be、uh, moderating a fun discussion about miso at MoFAT, the Museum of Food and Drink in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, on Thursday, July 12th, from 6 30 to 8 30. And the title of the event is The Multitude of Miso, an Evening with Beso. And Michael Kyogoku,、uh, who joined me on episode 78, and her executive chef,、uh, Emily Yuan of Beso, A charming Japanese restaurant in Noho will discuss the beauty of the Japanese superfood miso,、uh, how it's made, how they use it at home and、uh, at the restaurant. And the event includes a cooking demonstration and tasting. Tickets are available at the mofad.orgslash events, that is m o f a d.orgslash events. And finally,、uh, the, twi- the 22 second Sumo Stew is coming to New York on. Tuesday, July 17th, from、uh, 6 to 9 p.m. at Arrogant Swine in Brooklyn. And as you may know, Sumo Stew is a seasonal live streaming event of Sumo matches straight from Japan. And you can enjoy Japanese food from outstanding restaurants as well as you watch the, mat- as you watch the matches. And it's going to be the biggest Sumo Stew ever. And about,、uh, the venue is outdoor for the summery weather. And this round of Sumo Stew will feature a North Carolina barbecue style whole hook chanko nabe or chanko hot pot in collaboration with Tyson Ho of、uh, Arrogant Swine. And the tickets are available at sumostew.com, that is s u m o s t e w.com, sumostew.com. And for Japanese listeners, there is a $10 off discount code. That's it, Japanese, and just one word, Japanese. So、uh, please enjoy. Now, let's start a conversation with Christiana Lecky. Hello, Christiana. Welcome. <laughs> so,、uh, so, first,、uh, let's talk about your background. So, where did you grow up and、uh, what did you eat when you grew up?、Um, I grew up in Philadelphia. In a very,、uh, my grandparents both came from Italy.、Um, so, in a very Italian centric、uh, family and upbringing,、uh, my grandparents were very fond of gardening. My mother, even in her row home in Philadelphia, Had a garden in the backyard, so during the summer, lots of fresh vegetables. In the winter, fall, some preserved canned vegetables,、um, lots of fresh foods,、um, and、uh, pasta. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that sounds like the best. You said it was the best situation. Yeah, it was, it was pretty nice. You know, I, I feel like my parents were very wor- working very hard, and they had myself and two other. Kids to feed. So sometimes our weekday dinners would be a little rushed, but always taking time on the weekends for、mm. a longer, more extended meal.、Mm, wow. So it sounds like you had a good foundation. A pretty good foundation, yeah.、Um, and I heard that you went to Japan during your senior year in、yes. high school. So how did it happen? I, there was a teacher. I, w- I went to like a kind of a trade high school where I learned communications. And while I was there, there was my communications teacher. Was very interested in Japanese culture.、Um, we had done in our high school an exchange of Japanese students coming in、um, many times. And, you know, he sort of got the idea well, if they're coming here, it might be nice to send some kids from the city to go to、uh, Tokyo and Omiya, Japan,、mm. um, just to see the, learn the culture, see, you know, see the schools and how the kids there are taught. 
we mostly did observations while we were there in class. We learned like some basic calligraphy and um, just some like simple like paper folding and you mm. know just some like ritualistic uh, Japanese culture. But um, but yeah, so I basically begged my parents to let me go on this trip because I thought <laughs> it was very important for me to see the world and kind of an easy way to do it and. I sort of liked how extreme it was because it was so far away and um, <laughs> that was very exciting for me. And yeah, so I got accepted to go and yeah, and it sort of just, you know, it fell into place for me there. Mm, so it sounds like it's a small group of students. Yeah, it was like 12 of us. Mm, yeah. yeah. And then how, how many months? How, how long was uh, it? One month. Mm, oh, wow. Yeah. So that's very intense. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, um, so you... How did you stay with your uh, host family? Yeah, we stayed. I stayed with a principal um, and his wife and her parents in a in a pretty, I think, typical house um, just in the center of Omiya. Mm. And Omiya is uh, next to it's a Saitama prefecture, so fairly yeah. close, like commuting distance from central Tokyo. Yeah, we would take the train every morning really early and sort of like get our day going at like 6 a.m. And um, for me... I just remember the the sense of community within the family mm. and how <clears throat> and just how like everybody worked together um and everybody sort of respected everybody's role within the family and how important meals were no matter if it was 5am because mm. we were getting up before school or work or at dinner time there was a lot of attention and time mm. and there was a slowness that I feel like Sometimes at least my American household growing up felt very frenetic and kind of chaotic. There was a lot of um, control and and attention to detail and time spent mm, in so a way you, that I was not used to. Right, so there's no drive-through, like <laughs> not in the car. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it sounds like you got lucky to experience that kind of a fairly traditional household yeah. experience. Right. Okay, and uh, so what did you eat in Japan? Uh, I mean, I tried everything for the first time because growing up in Philadelphia the thing that I wasn't exposed to was I probably had never eaten Japanese food before in my life I mean I knew Japan and I understood but I didn't have ever taste those kind of foods growing up until I'd gone so I mean a typical meal in the morning would be some uh, braised shredded beef uh, some pickled vegetables a little broth mm. um, and you know I feel like I was like slow to start to enjoy to eat it, but I really did like it. It was just I was not used to being up at like, you know, I think time change and being up at five in the morning. So sometimes I wouldn't fully finish all my food and they would get they would be very concerned that I was not happy with what I was eating. But inside of my brain, I knew I was just like so blown away. And then at night we would have, you know, again, some sort of broth or flavorful soup. There would be um, times, one one evening it was all like different seafoods. They wanted to show us all the the local amazing fish and, and shellfish that were from Japan that they all prepared in a very lovely way. Some was fried, some was grilled. Um, you know, I taste it. We went to a very proper omakase sushi meal when I was there. We had, you know, tonkatsu and, you know, I think all the different levels of between homestyle Japanese cooking and also very refined, mm. um, like, sushi culture. Wow. Are you always uh, adventurous eater? 
Yeah, I, yeah, I think I, you know, I, I was very, I didn't want to turn anything down when I was there. I felt so open and I just felt like as a child, like I watched myself grow so much and my open and willingness to explore was just so memorable to me that I still think about it today. And, you know, I often attribute Japan to teaching me about a palate and understanding flavors and learning how the, like the subtleties of the ingredients or the flavors. Mm. Um, I remember like when I, like the night I arrived, we drank a little bit of green tea and I was just like, you know, it just tastes kind of like hot water. Like I didn't really get the subtleties of, and then the more I drank it and the more I thought about why they were, it was so revered and why they were so special and understanding the story and how it's made and the temperatures that it had to be prepared. And I think then I just started like understanding and, my palate would open to the to mm. the slight the small nuances. Interesting, because um, green tea is almost like the most subtle yeah. taste. Yeah, right. wow. which I, for me, I was like, okay. By the end, I was like, oh, I I get it and I like it and I and I can taste the the little nuances and I felt really excited about that. Mm. And yeah, and I taste it like jellyfish. I'm sure for the first, I'm sure like there were so many squishy, crunch, like texturally thing. The foods that I've eaten, especially in the desserts that I never would have experienced um, just staying in the United States at that time. And um, yeah, it was really special and it was very humbling. Mm. And just the openness of the Japanese people and there was just such compassion and, and care for detail and just so much pride in what uh, mm. everybody was showing me, what they were learning and doing. And but I'm curious. Oh, you didn't speak Japanese that time, right? No, so I mean, we learned like basic phrases to get to get by, and we would always have a translator. And mm. but at home, how did you communicate with that? Uh, luckily, the because the 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 host father was a principal, he spoke uh, very good English, and mm. he would interpret for his wife and for the grandparents. Mm. Wow! Um, so that's how you learned the depth straight into depths of yeah. Japanese culture. Just asking him a lot of questions. He was very patient. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what he wanted. Too. Yeah. So I'm so curious. Right. So, um, and I heard that uh, your experience in Japan kind of paved the way for your career as a chef. So what exactly inspired you to, you know, your kind of uh, career perspective? How did it happen? Yeah, I think for me, you know, growing up around my grandparents who were very much interested in cooking with a lot of detail and a lot of care. And my mom sort of did that as well. And then going to Japan and again, just like watching, like understanding that I loved food because I was there and I was enjoying it. And I was, you know, I'm, it was at such a fussy time for a kid where they could easily not like things. And a lot of people that went and enjoy the food that they were eating or missed home. And I sort of fell in love with the adventure and sort of fell in love with the flavors. And I think for me, it just, I, and I just sort of love the care and detail, you know, that my grandparents put into the food that, um, that I'd witnessed in Japan. And I just sort of fell in love with the idea of potentially doing that for a living. And, you know, it was long enough ago that it wasn't like the most posh or excited idea you know a lot of people especially women I think at the time were not really cooking or you didn't really know about many of them cooking and so I kind of was scared you know in high school it's so hard to know what you're going to want to do for the rest mm. of your life so I kept applying for jobs for for colleges mm. and 
finally decided to go to a college in in Philadelphia for uh, fashion apparel management and fashion right. design. And yeah, but let me let me stay with a little bit more longer about uh, you know inspiration from Japan because I think you know like you grew up in Italian yeah. you know, household. I think as far as I understand, Italian palette and mindset about ingredients and nature and seasonality very similar to Japanese, yeah. right? And uh, you didn't become you didn't think of becoming a chef before the trip to Japan. No. So what's the difference? I, I just think for me the the love and the the attention of the people with the food and the ingredients was the thing that I sort of like I just saw how happy it made them to prepare food for people or how much love and effort was going into it and it just sort of like stuck with something for me that I would I would like to do and also like I just enjoyed eating so much and I enjoyed just like tasting new things so much like mm-hmm. it, that was so important to me and I just like when I got back I sort of was like hmm, what else can I try where else can I go <laughs> eat like what you know there was definitely a much more like worldly focus on like growing my palate and exploring as much as possible that definitely wasn't there before mm, before right. I went on that trip right okay so do you find any favorite food uh, if when you came back, you wanted to eat that again? Uh, I mean, I definitely just eating rice in general and broths, I think, became something that I was, like, often trying to seek out. Like, things flavored with miso mm. were very, um, just, I just loved the richness of it and the way it made me feel when I'd eat it. Um, you know, eating tempura for the first time, as silly as that is, of course, like, who doesn't love something like perf- perfectly the most delicately fried mm. which is very hard to find in my I don't think I found that again and you know for many many years because mm. it's very it's an art to do it so perfectly right. somebody spends uh, their whole life exactly <laughs> yeah and that's sort of what like yeah that's what inspires me so much about Japanese food culture because yeah it is there's there is somebody who is like literally perfecting the art of tempura Mm. their whole I find that so fascinating and so I don't know humbling and endearing and just how how long it takes to perfect a craft like it keeps me dry it keeps me with a drive that know that I even though I feel like I'm a certain age I still have Mm. a lot more to learn and grow and Right. And, and explore and, and do better. Mm, that's interesting you said, because I think uh, that reminds me, what you said just reminded me of, you know, the way of, like, judo, kendo. Mm-hmm. Like, do means the way of, the spiritual, ultimate mm-hmm. form of whatever you do. So maybe that's the professional idea about cooking. And uh, it's almost food is a tool to um, pursue your perfection as a human being yeah right? so that's yeah, so beautiful mm, that's why i'm not the chef <laughs> <laughs> but you are so anyway so um yeah so you are talking about you you went to study fashion and then you decided to become chef eventually so what made you to make that decision well i was always working in during my time in college i was always working in restaurants um as a server as a busser hostess Eventually sort of found myself in the kitchen doing expediting the services around the chefs and just seeing the energy that they had and sort of the fun that they were having while they were cooking. I was just sort of drawn to that energy and I just just started to think about that a lot more than thinking about what my career would look like after I'd leave college and go into some sort of role in fashion and 
it just became more apparent that I was just much more interested in that. So I decided, you know, pretty quickly to just, because I was very nervous about like wasting any time, just immediately start, you know, I'd left and went into culinary school and then immediately started cooking while I was in school and Mm -hmm. almost was learning so much while I was going to school all day and then going to work. I mean, the hours were very, very long that I just decided that I should just be in the kitchen as much as possible. So then when I left culinary school, I decided if I'm going to not be in school anymore, I needed to work in a very strict, very like intense kitchen to learn all of the things that Mm. potentially leaving school I might be missing. Mm. And that's sort of um, how I found myself at uh, the Stripe Bass. Mm, Okay. So the uh, the Stripe Bass was in in Philadelphia by uh, Alfred Portale, who is, uh, of course, uh, the chef owner of uh, the Gotham Barn Girl, which is... Yeah, it's an iconic New York, yeah. And he definitely took a chance on me. I mean, he personally interviewed me, and I was just such a kid. Like, I didn't really know much, and, you know, but he saw something in me and and took a chance, and, you know, and it took me a really long time to find my footing in that restaurant. Mm. It was really funny because my friend... I saw him in the hallway. We went to high school together. He was the sous chef at the restaurant. Oh, wow. And it was like a really happy coincidence. Mm. And it made me feel like, okay, he's here. Like, I, I might have a friend here. I might be able to make it. And But they taught me so much about just discipline and uh, perfection and, you know, prop, like crazy sourcing for the most somewhat exotic, best ingredients you know, it was definitely at a time where we would be getting fish from all over the world and nobody was questioning that sort of ethos, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, you'd be receiving the best of the best from everywhere. And um, and so I got to see a lot of things and taste a lot of things. And, yeah, just worked with a really tough but, you know, amazing group of people. Mm. Yeah, as far as I learned uh, about you, you very intuitively capture what you want to do and you act on it and you really, you know, grab the moment and you keep going so strong. So thank you. Very <laughs> inspiring. Yeah. So then you um, you worked at uh, the Straight Bass and then you worked with uh, uh, Christopher Lee. Uh, yeah, I met, in New mm-hmm, York. I met him at Straight Bass and, you know, I was just like a, like a tornado. Like I was just starting to get my groove there and he had been given an opportunity to take over the restaurant uh in New York and he he had asked me to come along and I was like how could I say no to this I wasn't even a sous chef he was taking some sous chefs and he had said yes he had asked me and I I mean I would have been crazy not to do it so I said yes and you know eventually became a sous chef there and Mm. um again another really you know and being in a new city again being able to hone skills and work on really niche dishes for a small tasting menu lots of um like trial and error and repetition and mm. you know that was it was very very interesting to work in that way I mean the striped bass was kind of like that but it was a much bigger restaurant this was like a very specific tasting menu only mm. um really fine dining using the best ingredients what brought me what reminds me what I loved about Gil was we had such a large tea program there there was like maybe like 200 different types of tea Mm, and that it I always that always reminded me of my time when I was in Japan because I love tea there that's when I learned about 
all the you know nuanced uh, small flavor, but labor teas and yeah we had such a big tea every day I would have like a very special Mm. before service uh, a very special tea done at the proper temperature it was like a very nice like calming moment before by uh, Chris Day yeah exactly yeah Yeah. totally he's he's at the level medicine now yeah yeah I I I got that show of um, his passion about tea Tea, yeah yeah even I think that was the biggest even now, including now, yeah, experience. I mean, the program about tea. So, okay, and then, um, so you worked um, after that. You worked for uh, April Bloomfield. Mm-hmm. Everybody reviews her. <laughs> so yeah. at the Breastline. So how did it happen? Um, I met April at an event when I was working at Gill. It's funny how everything sort of transitions into something else, but. And I used to always go eat at the Spotted Pig like a couple times a month with friends after work because we were working in Midtown and we would close it much earlier than, you know, the place in the West Village that would be open very late. And I would go there and actually like eat vegetables because I think one, I needed nourishment and two, like I just was never interested in eating like hamburgers or like heavy fatty foods. So I would lean towards the vegetables there and I sort of was because the dishes that we were doing at Gilt were so labor-intensive and so, like, 50 components and so, mm-hmm. like, intricate in a very different way that I think I was so taken aback by how a three-ingredient salad could be so flavorful and uh, so perfect mm. and, 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 like, not wanting more, you know, not garnishing for the sake of garnishing or having every texture available on a plate, but it was still like so satisfying. Mm. Um, and that always stuck with me. And so I eventually met her and she was hiring and I was offered a sous chef job and I sort of just worked my way up to be the executive chef at Breslin mm. by the time that my role was over there. Right. So, uh, so all those uh, three super successful restaurants, uh, what did you learn at each place or each chef? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, at starting out, I, I, I think I learned foundation and classic French techniques uh, from my first experience. And I think Guild, I learned more about like honing in and, and creative uh, aspects of creating menus, creating dishes and precision and again, more exposure to ingredients. And I think with, with April, I learned to strive for like consistency and um, perfection and simplicity um, like just because the food is simple doesn't mean there's not, you know, you never serve a, a old herb or a brown leaf, like always looking at the really small details. Mm. Um, and then, you know, teaching myself how to manage a much larger team and mm. a much busier, more fast paced environment. Right. Because wrestling is really busy too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like breakfast. It was breakfast, lunch and dinner. And mm. Cause it's the nice hotel. Yeah. Right. Okay. So um, so let's take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about um, how Christina practices Japanese philosophy of motainai at Raynard. <laughs> so please stay with us.
Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at 3, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the, the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. I get to learn a new factoid, a, a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network. You could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Kotema, and my guest today is Christina Reki, who is executive chef at Reynard in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. By the way, Reynard definitely is one of my favorite restaurants Thank in the whole you. city. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now let's talk about Reynard. So uh, you joined Reynard in September uh, 2017 as the executive chef. So how did it happen? Uh, it happened, it, I actually started in July. Okay. That's okay. Um, but it happened because I was a regular at Andrew Tarlow's restaurants and he happened to catch wind that I was not working and I was taking a break. And mm. Let's talk about Andrew quickly. So yeah. how do you describe him? He's my hero too. <laughs> yeah, he's a really, I mean, you know, I think Andrew is just, uh, he always, I don't know why I always lean towards the word gentle, <laughs> but I do think he's just such a, such a like gentle, kind human who's very thoughtful about the things that he does um, and has a really um, beautiful way of expressing that amongst his restaurants and just to care for his employees and, you know, for the people that is in his uh, life. And I think, you know, I'm drawn to that because, you know, it's not too often that you get to work with people who are really people focused and really Mm -hmm. thinking about you know, the well-being of their staff and, and how that and how that affects him and his businesses. Mm. Yeah, he started uh, his first uh, restaurant, Diner. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many years ago? Like 15, uh, 20. 20 years ago. It's going to be 20 <laughs> this year, yeah. Right, and uh, yeah, he's, uh, I think he really doesn't show that this is my empire or anything. Yeah, it's not an empire. It's more, yeah, it's like a community. 
Mm, right. So sounds like uh, employees are happy. They they don't quit or they just move around different. I feel like I feel like eventually people do leave, but I think that when people leave, they've definitely put in a lot more time than some people might put in in other places mm, and graduate into some totally their own for things. sure. Right. So, all right. So the the Reynard is uh, within the White Hotel, which is mm-hmm. such a cool Brooklyn style restaurant. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely unique, I think, in its in its way, and yeah, I, I I've been really enjoying myself, and I feel like I I've learned a lot, and and again, still so much more to learn and do, and mm. um, right. So do you, so this is a new American restaurant, and then sure. uh, well, since it opened, it's been always uh, using um, with fire, but um, we won't talk about your style of cooking with woods soon in a minute but what's your philosophy of cooking Look, after those three amazing chefs we just discussed so right now how do you um i mean what kind of style of food would you I, like to cook for your customers i think that type of food that i'm trying to always convey and again i'm i'm it's going to take me years to sort of perfect but right now it's very um portion controlled in a lot of ways like making sure it's the right amount of food on the plate so people don't get oversaturated or feel too stuffed. There's a level of uh, mindful and healthfulness. Obviously, right now I'm working very, very hard about sourcing and what's great about, like, I feel much happier now than maybe in the winter because there's so many vegetables and amazing farmers to work with right now, and I actually can be very selective about who I who I can work whose vegetables I can purchase and that's like really important to me. So right now I'm I'm like aggressively working on sourcing the best ingredients with but also working with farmers who you know are giving back to the land and and respecting the earth, not just you know not just big co-ops and collaboration collaborative farms that maybe it's the food is their vegetables are delicious, but maybe they're not practicing the mm. the things that are more that are giving back to the greater to the greater world, you know. Right. Um, so that's been really interesting this summer, and and having some getting a hold of some really small, really beautiful farmers doing some really mm. really amazing stuff in, in a small scale kind of way. Right. So it's totally your idea and then Andrew Talo's idea of restaurant or. Providing food to the public sounds like very in I don't know like the probably almost exactly the same because yeah. Andrew has a uh, uh, the Malawan daughters mm-hmm. that means they there's a butcher shop sure for sustainable responsible yeah. supply of meat yeah that supplies Reynard too right? sure so. Yeah, and I think um, Andrew's wife, uh, Katie, mm-hmm. he, uh, she's from a farm, so she yeah. can, she has a real idea of sure. farming, too. So that's awesome. Uh, so the your menu uh, seems to be really, you know, an Italian in a way, because very clean mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, seasonal ingredients, like yeah. you just said. So, and I see some uh, Japanese ideas, like... Uh, you have some tofu or dashi. Yeah. So what's what's your idea of using Japanese? Um, I again I like it because there is a healthfulness and a cleanness and I think what I enjoy about because the restaurant doesn't have like it doesn't have to be like it's not a Middle Eastern or an, a definitively Italian, it's sort of new American that I think what we as we know, America is sort of made up of everything. So 
I feel like I feel more relaxed about using certain Japanese ingredients or like producing tofu or making dashi. Um, you know, it's great for me with when we're making a dashi because it's such a good, you know, a utilization of product. You know, I we smoke the fish bones in the hearth mm. to add sort of our take on a dashi. Um, so we're not just like, you know, buying the, you know, ingredients outsourced. We're sort of making the ingredients from in-house and trying to mimic something that would be similar to a dashi. So certainly still using like mm. kombu and umami like flavors. But yeah, also taking our, our scraps mm. and turning that into sort of like a, like a, like a, like a broth sort of based on that. Right. I think there's a basic idea of dashi is uh that what exactly it is mm-hmm. to create by layering different flavors without wasting anything yeah. and you create uh, umami and uh, umami multiplies mm-hmm. not just that up so it kind of like reduces um, the amount of salt or other ingredients sure. so it's really helpful to yeah me. yeah i'm trying to work on more like subtle subtlety and subtlety of flavors not just like killing everything with like salt and acid but making sure things are bright and satiating you know it's been sort of like that's the that's the challenge that I'm at right now. Mm, but uh, after the last meal by provided by you, I I usually, you know, you'd go out and then before you go to bed, it's like oh my god, why did I eat so much? Yeah. and I didn't have that feeling yeah. at all. So yeah, and that's what I'm sort of striving to. I know I had uh, some friends in recently, and you know they were like, we don't really want to eat meat. Is that going to be a, a you know is that is that hard? And I'm like. No, you know, like there's so many great vegetables to try right now. And I do think that's what's so great about it. Like you can really, you can like certainly eat a piece of steak, but I also think the piece of steak you're going to eat is, yes, it's properly sourced and it's nicely aged and it's all, but it's also a good portion size. You know, Mm. you're not going to, you know, if there is a large steak on the menu, it's meant to be shared, you know, I mean, um, and we certainly encourage that, Mm. you know, and. I just feel like it's, it feels like the right fit and amount of protein to eat mixed with some mm. really fresh vegetable to go along with it to sort of help that. And, um, right. yeah, and that's sort of like how I think about like when I'm portioning stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Well, it's just really, I think less is more, right? Like you appreciate sure. the taste. And can you imagine like one sushi could be like five <laughs> times bigger? <laughs> yeah, it. it's crazy. No, it's true. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um yeah, um, so let's talk about your uh, cooking uh, with uh, woods. So your menu is almost entirely cooked over, wood fire, not mm-hmm. gas, right? Yeah. So what's special about cooking with woods? Um, what's special is it, it builds flavor. It, it, give, it adds another element. Um, it, it, I think that is sort of my main attraction to it. I think as a, as a cook, as a chef, you're, you have more, it's more work to do, so you're constantly touching the ingredients or moving the fire around or building it and it you know and it's it's often just like every day sort of a a work in progress and a learning um but I think it also gives you a lot of freedom to do lots of different cooking techniques at once you know like for example if we have like a like a broccolini on the menu right now and it's we blanch it and then we like hang it in the hearth to pick up some smoke and then we finish Mm. it you know, on the grill or on the plancha near the fire. And, Mm. you know, it's just like there's, I just feel like there's so much complexity within, you know, and you have so much more freedom. It just keeps things so much more fresh and interesting than just like turning on a, turning on a gas burner and Mm. putting something in a pan and just like then turning the burner off. And then like, you know, like, I mean, certainly that's, there's, 
there's ways of building. Right. It's just a different way of building flavor for me with the wood that I really enjoy. Mm. So wood cooking to me, it's a you kind of like a lifetime of wood, right? Like a fresh sure. wood, cut wood, and then you make it into charcoal. So you have different sure. um, style of heat source. Mm-hmm. Because you're cooking wood too, as you cook. Uh, yeah, you're basically cooking the wood to get the charcoal to then, yeah, busy. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Right, and you are you have a very interesting equipment, I which I saw in your kitchen. So you have plancha, like a, mm-hmm. like a flat heat surface, right. mm-hmm. and then smoker and wood rack, so that yeah. you can yeah, you're hanging mm-hmm. hanging things, the smoke. Yep. And then you have a hearth. And then, yeah, the hearth and then the grill. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the, how, you know, with the, do you have differentiate, like, you know, uh, the young wood, mm-hmm. the flesh flame? And how do you use the flame versus... Uh, so the flame, I, it's very easy. Like, we can put a log and just put that directly underneath the plancha mm-hmm. because it's more of, like, almost like turning on a burner mm. um, because it's you're not directly... Co- you're using the wood as basically how gas you know would Mm. heat up a pan um so that's where like sort of we can put like some bigger logs and maybe ones that aren't the most cured are going to give us the best results um and then we load up in a basket just a bunch of logs basically so the coals will fall down um and those we can cook directly on which i really have been enjoying is Mm. putting things in maybe a little mesh basket and just sort of giving it a quick saute Mm. in the morning you know i think I just think this is like I get so like the thought that somebody could come in to the restaurant and have homemade yogurt with strawberries that have just been lightly roasted in the coals. I think Mm. it's just like what is such a unique special experience that like I where in New York can you have a breakfast like that, you know, like I just (laughs) think and it's also like I think so that kind of stuff, you know, and at dinner we do a lot of vegetable cookery in the mm. directly in the coals and we cook bread directly wow. uh directly on the coals and mm. you know and we do uh, mostly the meats are grilled and some are roasted in a wood oven but trying to like just you know try to divide the menu evenly around mm. the kitchen sort of not paying much attention to the saute or the the there we do have a few burners but mm. it's like not the point of the restaurant i don't think so we try not to put a lot of focus there right um yeah that the the charcoal the coal is very interesting because uh, you know binchotan mm-hmm. that's a binchotan i think it's like a you know like a brand name like a champagne it yeah. has to be from uh, like a couple of regions like yeah. a kishu um niniwakaima prefecture that's and i think uh, the charcoal there's a high infrared rays, so it penetrates deeper into mm-hmm. cooking. So yeah, and some of it, it's. Uh, I feel like you buy it because it doesn't produce a lot of smoke. Mm. Um, so in a kitchen that might be kind of small without good ventilation, it's also good. And I feel like the binchochan is also, you know, the the coals last longer depending on the level and mm. how high it goes. You can have it, and I mean, I've worked with the Japanese grill like that before, and we would always save the coals because you would just like cool them and the next day use them to start the the fire because mm. um, why wouldn't you? And also they're so expensive, the specific Japanese ones. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I checked the price before. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, but you, they do last, a, you know, I will say for 
there's, you know, you, there's a value there. They last a very long time. Mm. It's not like getting like, you know, the bagged charcoal that you get. Right. Like <laughs> that stuff burns like in seconds, mm. you know? Right. So it's like a maybe a more kind of dense coal? Dense, yeah. Right, very right. dense. So it lasts longer. Very dense, very hardwood, yeah. Mm. Right. And uh, when I had your chicken, those mm-hmm. smoked thing over the rack mm-hmm. and uh, it's definitely impressively smoky but very subtle yeah so that's the magic of the back yeah yeah it. totally and keeping it in a certain area like how much direct contact to the to the smoke it has that's sort of what I enjoy about it I think because we have so many ways to build the nuance flavors it doesn't have to be so you know you don't feel like you're eating barbecue or you're eating like you know, like smoked foods, like so by the end of your meal, your palate is sort of like so like burnt on smoke flavors. Like sometimes if you eat like real like Southern barbecue or, you know, it's so intensely smoky by the end of it, you're like, whoa, you know, like, mm. right, that's, but I that's, do, I do. That's what I enjoy about this, the sort of the way that we're trying to do things is that it's gradually building flavor or building smoke and, and it being kind of subtle and maybe it fits. It's not like, it's not so obvious when you're immediately mm. tasting it and you're like, oh. I get yeah. it, but it, like, it makes you, excuse me, like sort of have to think about it a little more. Mm. Yeah, I, I understand that the barbecue that's very charred, like you know, yeah. very strong flavor, and yeah. you need a hot heat yeah. sauce, like like a hot sauce. But uh, when I had your chicken, I was my almost amazingly sweet yeah. chicken meat. That's yeah, the meat. Just, yeah, the meat is again just from really good sourcing and being very fortunate. I mean. The chicken that we're buying right now, it's like some of the best chicken I've ever had in my life. I think it's just so special and mm. it's so chickeny flavored. Yeah, almost it has like a little bit of sweetness to it. Right. But I think uh, the smokiness of uh, that the subtle but strong smokiness mm-hmm. made it sweeter. That's yeah. like the might be the contrast. Yeah. Yeah. So I really like that. I have to come back <laughs> to <laughs> yes, taste <please>. it again. <laughs> um, so the... Uh, so we, we've been talking about the motainai. Motainai is a you can't waste it. That's the Japanese uh, foundational idea. We are like cheap people. But uh, <laughs> so I heard that you work very hard to minimize waste from your kitchens. So um, so first, where is the idea from? Why do you think it's important? I think, well, it's important because we know the world is, you know, with the, so many things are becoming so much more apparent on what how we're treating our world and the environment and I think anybody who is getting into any sort of big business is they're just not coming at it in any of the right way to not even have that in their minds I think Mm -hmm. so for me it's it's a hard thing to sort of um because the challenges of working in such a large restaurant with so many different services it's so hard to control Mm -hmm. um so that's why for me if I felt like if I didn't like start putting that as a focus first then it would just never really materialize so you know the way that we try to do it is you know for me it's working with smaller farms and more everything as literally local as possible or making everything in house as possible to cut down on package waste and Mm. and products so it's you know it's great when we get you know when we have our farm deliveries from smaller farms they just give you stuff in either biodegradable bags or they have it in crates and then you take the vegetables out of the crate, they take the crates back and then, you know, we put the in our reusable containers. It just like makes a lot more sense. It's like, so, you know, for me, that's that's like a first and foremost sort of thing that I'm trying to mm. eliminate as much like box waste. And I mean, yeah, the stuff's being recycled, but it's also like, 
you know, the, the shelf life of that box is so small for the amount of energy it takes to make mm. it. And, you know, for me, it, it's just such a waste because we have totally. no use for it. Um, and for plumbers or whoever delivers, sure. it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to buy them. I know. And that's sort of, it's interesting as much as like you think people would just be like, oh yeah, let's not do it that way. I just think like the bigger places get and the bigger, um, you know, it's just, they feel like that's the best way to, to, to ship or to get their products then. And I get that, but I just, then I'm just like, well, maybe you're too big of a company to work with. And I'm trying to only work with people who will do things a little differently and be mm-hmm. thinking in a bigger way, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Well, well, by the way, um, you know, that's a uh, very environmentally friendly. And then like on, at the kitchen level, like for instance, you know, Japanese people, like they eat blowfish and they remove the poisonous part. And then, like, uh, even from really little, I hit the tail. The tail one, you roast it. Yeah. And put it in a hot stock and drink. Mm-hmm. That's, like, complete whole eating. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I heard you do that, too. Like sure. Pills. Okay. Yeah, we, I mean, you know, for example, the chicken you ate is, the broth is made from the bone, the backbones that weren't used. Mm. Uh, you ate all the offal. There was kidney, heart, mm. and liver, and gizzards. That's but, in the sauce, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, that's no, a actually really tasty part. Yeah, I mean, you're eating the whole thing right there. That's mm-hmm. a like a really great example. Um, you know, we try we take the fish bones and we dry them out, and we're adding them to broths for adding some smoke, but also adding a little bit of subtle fishiness to mm. to things. Um, every vegetable scrap, you know, if we try to either dry it and dry it in the hearth and make mm. powders or fortify stocks, or you know, right now it's a big shell season, like pea shells and fava you know we're charring and adding to broths or again drying things out or you know fermentation is another way that we like mm. try to sort of think less about the compost bin you right. know and think more about putting it back into a dish mm. and it's not just uh, saving what could be waste you're actually adding flavors because sure yeah this motaine idea i heard is uh kind of came from uh, buddhism Mm. And uh, there's a word saying, nokorimono ni There's a god like luck in the leftover. Mm. That's the idea. <laughs> I like but, that. Yeah, but it's like appeals. I think people say skin has the best in, uh, nutrition, sure. and you make it powder, and yeah. you have more flavor. Yeah. Right. And uh, so make, by making the powder, you can use it more flexibly. Yeah. Totally. So yeah, it's a, it's a creating value rather than saving waste. Mm. So. Okay, and uh, so I have um, very. This is uh, something I was so curious about. So you take care of your staff people to very well. To I mean, this is more about your management mm-hmm. skills in the kitchen because yeah. sounds like you're doing so well. So how do you take care of your people? Uh, you know, I try. What I remembered from my last experience being like such a high manager was that I felt my staff was afraid to speak to me because, I don't know, there was just some, for some reason, I was just, like, too high up and they didn't feel like it was an approachable environment that they could turn to me for help. So when I started at Renard, it was very important for me to make sure that, yes, I am your boss, yes, I'm on a level, but more so than, but more than that, I'm also here for you and for your, for your, for your wellness and for your health. Um... I think a lot of people, especially in the industry that I've chosen, struggle with um, st- struggle with issues. You know, maybe they're separated from their families, or 
they have mental stress or depression or they're not eating correctly or they're maybe partying too much. And, you know, I try to like really pay attention to what, you know, as much as I can, what my staff is doing. And also just sort of created like an open door policy to come in and talk about anything that might be troubling you. If you need advice, if you need, you know, counseling, if some, you know, Mm. especially in terms of like safety within the, in the company, you know, making sure if there's, if somebody said something to you that made you uncomfortable, that like your voice matters, this matter, like just making sure people feel protected Mm. and safe and also, that they have a voice and their voice matters, I think has been sort of the thing that I, I like, we talk about it, you know, I probably have a meeting with my staff, you know, once every couple months and mm. I always, we re- always rebring it up, you know, and, you know, with the recent death of Anthony Bourdain, sort of just sitting down with the staff and saying like, Hey, like mental health is a real, you know, is mm. a real issue. And, you know, please just know that like me my, and my other chefs, we are all, we're all here helping each other, working together, but also like if you are going through something, you need an extra moment, if you're feeling distracted, Mm. you know, it's just going to help me, you know, instead of assuming that people are being lazy or being um, careless or, you know, despondent at work, you know, it's getting to the bigger issue of why maybe somebody's behavior might be off instead of resorting to frustration and anger Mm. has sort of been my approach with this. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. And uh, one of my uh, great friends, he manages a call center of mm. suicide suicide hotline, mm-hmm. and he said people just want to be listened to. Yeah, I don't. You don't need a solution. You just yeah. want them to feel there's somebody there yeah. for you. So, yeah, but it's not easy. It's to not do. easy. No. Yeah, and I mean, again, this is. I would say this is the part of my career. Besides, of course, I need to continue to push myself uh, culinarily and make sure that I'm striving still for excellence but I think more in a human sense as my like as a as I get older it's sort of where I want to make sure I'm putting a lot of energy and focus to make sure that I am the best uh best person I can be at work and making sure that yeah people who have decided to make sacrifices in their lives to come work with me are getting something in return and Mm. besides just being paid you know right so uh well the well, nowadays, you know, we are talking about gender issues sure. too. But uh, is that something related to how you can be successful as a female chef, and uh, you can stay focused and strong? Is that? Uh, in sorry, in what way? Yeah, like, like being, you know, like you listen to your team. Sure. And uh, you're kind of building a strong team. Is that the key to manage your k- kitchen as you focus and try to become the greatest chef? Yeah. As well. Yeah. No, I I definitely think so. I mean, I think. You know, I think I've seen a lot of men run kitchens and I think I've seen, you know, uh, you know, a lot of mistakes that were made. And I think everybody in the industry is sort of trying to learn and focus on being better and being more thoughtful. I think for me, it's just I don't want to do it anymore if that's if that's not how we're going to be conducting ourselves. And Mm -hmm. and I and I think as a female, I just, you know, I just I think it's just important to make sure that you know, I'm identified as, as a being a female leader, but also that, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a woman take, trying to take care of my staff as a whole mm. and myself and my sous chefs. Right. So it's, uh, maybe it's becoming a good time for the kitchen, whole kitchen for female regardless. Yeah. Because I think I had a conversation with, uh, you know, 
conservative Japanese uh, culinary industry and uh, the younger generation, they say, are really changing. Because yeah. you can be, because it's the, the time of information yeah. and you cannot pretend that you know everything. Yeah, and I also think, I, you know, I applaud the younger generation for, you know, ha- saying no to things, like seeing injustice or, you know, not they're not so easily bullied or, be, or will be pushed around. And, you know, I, I think... You know, my generation, I felt like you had no choice. You had to sort of do things that Mm. even though you felt like it was a hardship or a sacrifice or, you know, but you would never say no or you'd never push back. You just sort of blindly Mm. went along with what was told of you. And And I applaud, you know, the younger generation now to be a little more like have some standards earlier on or have some value for themselves. Mm, right. So sounds like a good communicator that goes back <laughs> to high school. <laughs> right. Trying. Yeah. So um, are you still in touch with your host family? You know, unfortunately not. I'm like, you know, I really should. I, I, I am planning on hopefully getting back to Japan and uh, not, not this fall, but uh, maybe winter or early spring of next year. Mm. So... I would like to go and sort of research and see where everybody is at. Yeah, well, they'll be so proud of you. Yeah. Especially they inspire <laughs> this great show. Yeah, I know, it's true. Right. Okay, so, uh, yeah, please keep me posted. I will. Yeah, so where can we find your updates? Um, updates, well, I mean, you can, on my Instagram, I usually post things, but my email, uh, if anybody has any questions or needs anything, mm-hmm. do you want me to give it? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, my email is Christina, uh, ch at wythehotel.com. Great. All right. So uh, thank you for joining us today and uh, good luck. Thank you. All right. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or, or guests, uh, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. And Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, Spotify as a podcast. And uh, our engineer is David, David Tatashore. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.